I am pleased to be sitting here with Andrew Stutterford, who is a contributing editor with National Review and a frequent commentator on European matters. And Andrew is joining me today to discuss um, the issue of Brexit, which, uh, as many of you know, uh, has to do with the proposed uh, or the actual referendum that will take place on June 23rd, so only a few days from now, regarding whether the UK will exit the European Union or whether it will stay in the European Union. Uh, Andrew has been, as I said, uh, an observer and a commentator on Europe for many, many years, and recently, uh, in the last few months, uh, has taken up this issue, uh, publishing uh, many, many articles, not only on National Review, but also on other... Weekly Standard. On the Weekly Standards and Weekly Standard and other places. And I will start by asking you, Andrew... Uh, the European Union has been with us for a long time. Uh, when did you start thinking that uh, the UK might be better off outside the European Union than staying within it? Uh, I think that's a, that's a, a very interesting question uh, because I think that my thought process is not only mine. I think quite a lot of people have gone on a similar sort of journey. Now, I'm not quite uh, uh, old enough, thank heavens, to have been able to vote in the original EU referendum, or the original referendum, which was in 1975. But I remember following the, the issue very carefully. And Britain joined in 1973. Uh, there was quite a lot of dissatisfaction, and there was a, a basically a renegotiation, allegedly, of the terms, fairly bogus, in fact. And this was put to the vote in 1975 and approved our continued membership in what was known as the common market, but I'll use that phrase deliberately, uh, was approved. Now, the, I, the problem, the basic problem at the heart of British membership, and I'll get to how I got to where I got, uh, relates to this, is really a different understanding of what the European Union is about. The British people don't uh, think so much in philosophical abstractions. It's essentially an empirical uh, tradition and to most Brits, what they, they saw was the common market, basically a free trading zone uh, that's in line with many British traditions, uh, closer cooperation with our European neighbours, all good things, and uh, I certainly at the time was, was uh, in favour of it. The problem was that the common market was a misnomer. The project of European integration uh, was always something much bigger from the very beginning, it was about ultimately the creation of a European state of a sort. We could, we could disagree, you know, you can agree and disagree and argue about what exactly was meant by that, um, but it was about a state. If you looked at the Treaty of Rome, the founding document, it referred to ever closer union. Uh, that the Brits generally regarded as just, as we say, guff. Yeah, yeah, it didn't mean anything. And I did a graduate degree in EU law, what would now be called EU law. And yeah, that was there. And that was my first realization that there was something more to this. And do you believe that the initial idea of the, uh, the architects of this effort was to uh, try to recreate something that resembles the United States? Or was it something that they saw uh, 
more of a hybrid, borrowing some things from the United States uh, structure and trying to apply it to Europe? I think, uh, I think it depends on, it, it depended on who you asked. Uh, there was some of the, some of the founding fathers had a, uh, essentially wanted to create a new, a new European nation as such. Uh, interestingly, one of the more important and still one of the heroes of, of European integration was a man called Spinelli. Uh, and uh, he talked to, he, who interestingly had a, until he broke with communism, a, a communist background. Uh, and he really wanted to replace what he saw as the false consciousness of nationalism uh, with a new European consciousness and a creation of a European state. Others saw it as a hybrid. Others saw it as a, uh, a means, actually, to bring the, a, a, a war-torn continent together and basically to, pre to preserve a, a degree of European influence which they had lost in the war. Uh, the famous remark by de Gaulle, which, which I won't quote entirely accurately, but he said that he recognized that Germany was recovering its economic strength and that Germany was to be the horse and uh, uh, France was to be the coachman. And the idea was this would be a projection of European power. But to go back to your original question, this was something much bigger than a trade bloc. If you look at what, how it was sold to the British people in the 70s, it was sold as basically about trade. People knew, some politicians knew, it was about much more about that, there are lots of memos floating around, but I remember that is not how it was sold. How, nevertheless... And then, and then many different layers of other, yeah. other, uh, other mandates or, or ambitions were, were laid on top of, of the trade issue. And then, you know, if we fast forward a few decades, I think you're going to tell me that uh, we've ended up in a much bigger bureaucracy and we've deviated from the initial idea of, of, of uh, free trade. We still have free trade, but now we have maybe a lot of other things that, that we don't want. Well, I think from the point of view, again, you have, to, you have to draw the distinction between what was always intended and what was always intended is what... It's a journey, and the journey, so far as the original founders are concerned, uh, the journey continues. The right. problem is it's not what most British people mm -hmm. thought they were signing up for. In the 80s, uh, people were inclined, people like me, who are right of centre and free traders, uh, sort of were rather hypnotised by the free trade, the, the economic liberalisation, uh, which appeared to be happening in the EU. The EU began as a sort of very much a European, uh, social democrat, Christian democrat type ideological consensus. Now we seem to be pushing it in a more free trading, free market direction, we being the British. And it was only really when the, the implications of what we had agreed to, because it's always treaty by treaty by treaty, um, began to sink in, that one really had it brought home that we're beginning to talk about the creation of some sort, and I'd emphasize some sort, of superstate. So there was perhaps at the beginning a sort of misunderstanding at inception, which was easily papered over because we hadn't moved that far yet. And then as we got, uh, you know, with success and with time, um, the initial ambitions of, of some parties uh, perhaps moved to the, to the forefront and, and created alarm other, among other people who had seen it differently all along. Basically, yes. I mean, there was the, 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 the it just, 
you began to see through the mist what was clearly involved. So mm -hmm. the price, basically, for the sort of the, the, the liberalization that we saw in the 80s um, was basically a treaty change, which meant that much more Europe, which Britain signed, Mrs. Thatcher signed, uh, which, which, which took the integration through to a much higher level. The, I'll spare you some of the technical details, but you then had the great debate about the euro. So at this point, I was still in the, in the Europe, very much in the European camp. The short-sighted though that probably was. Uh, then you had the great debate about the euro. That clearly was economic nonsense, absolute madness. It was central planning run wild. It made no sense. And that was... A, when, when you had a look at the debate... You thought, you thought the idea of the euro... Uh, I've seen some of your writings on the topic uh, recently. Uh, were you uh, skeptical of it from the, from the, from the outset? From the okay. very beginning. And the, I was mainly thinking about it for, for, for Britain. Um, but then in the mid-90s, I met an economist called Bernard Connolly, who wrote an excellent book foreseeing what was going to happen. And I was then thought, this is madness all round. So that was the beginning of the, if you like, my Euroscepticism written large. And then the, when I became, I never thought I would ever be in the position of saying Britain should leave. And the moment that, that, that I changed my mind uh, was when the, the EU talked about having a European constitution. Mm. And when that was rejected by uh, French and, and Dutch voters, and yet they carried on and proceeded to basically put the constitution in force by another means, known as the Lisbon Treaty. I thought these people are never going to. That, that, that was the tipping point. For me, it was the tipping point. Actually, I did some reading on this on one on one of your recent columns uh, from June 14. So that, that's very recent. It's only uh, three days ago, and uh, you quote Ambrose Evans Pritchard, who writes for the Telegraph. I'm going to read one of. Uh, Mr. Evans Pritchard's uh, paragraphs or sentences, and he says the the EU crossed a fatal line when it smuggled through the Treaty of Lisbon by executive cabal after the text had already been rejected by French and Dutch voters in its earlier guise. And then uh, in your own article, you added, this was the fatal line for me too. And let's spend a little more time on this because uh, so there was a constitution that was proposed. Uh, some countries voted on it, the French and the Dutch. This was in 2005. That's right. And both of them rejected it. And there was a bit of a hiatus after that. And then two years later, um, there was a, another effort to bring it back. And that's that 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 was when the Treaty of Lisbon was was uh, was adopted, or at least discussed, and then adopted a year or two later. And, and what happened? And was, uh, sorry, but at this point, there, at that stage, no other referendum uh, had yeah. taken place anymore. No, I mean, I think except in Ireland. In Ireland, yes, in Ireland. But, but but what happened? The Treaty of what the, what the Treaty of Lisbon did was um, it, it it deconstructed. The, the proposed draft constitution, which was meant to be an American-style constitution, it, and it basically, that, that died, because they couldn't get around the legal fact that it had been rejected. But they then basically reconstituted all of what counted in it in such a way legally as to avoid referendums um, or make it easy for states to avoid uh, referendums on it. 
Now, in the UK, and the, and the woman who forced this through, by the way, was Angela Merkel, uh, the, in the UK, what British voters had been promised uh, by the Labour government was that there would be no entering into an EU constitution um, without, without popular consent. But that what, was at the time of Blair. Then. This was at the time of okay. Blair, as I recall. I think it was either Blair or Brown. It was mm -hmm. Brown who ultimately signed it, but the promise was made by Blair. Okay. And what he said, or, or either Brown or Blair said with a straight face, was, no, this Treaty of Lisbon doesn't really matter that much. Uh, we have, uh, Britain has the necessary exemptions. And all of this was completely untrue. Mm -hmm. And again, it poisoned the well still further. And I was out, so to speak, by then, it only made me outer. So the Constitution, when they brought it back after it failed in the uh, French and Dutch referenda, and it was brought back, uh, I understand that it was downsized significantly. However, it included, it still included many clauses yes. that, were, that were alarming from and, your perspective. Yeah, I mean, basically what it did was extend the competences of the European Union. Uh, the, there is a, a fairly ludicrous, uh, now if you like, foreign ministry, uh, there is uh, more decisions can be taken by majority vote. National veto was watered down still further. So the process of integration carried on. It, it, it took it up to another level, basically. And was this, uh, is that the treaty that also moved uh, many items uh, of decision from a una unanimous, requiring yes. a unanimity to a majority? Yes, be, there had been two. Uh, that there was the, the there had been two or three sort of previous stages where this had happened. Um, again, you know, Britain had signed on for it. This was the latest and most dramatic extension. Uh, well, not maybe not the most dramatic, but it was a significant extension of uh, majority voting. Okay, so so it, it it brought us to a point which explains the divide today, which. Um, you can tell me if I'm describing it well, but uh, it seems to me on one side, the remain camp um, who are not concerned about, or, or let's say who are less concerned if they are at all about these clauses and who see uh, great risks to leaving. And uh, on the other side, uh, people who are advocating leaving the EU, uh, mainly because they perceive uh, a gradual loss of sovereignty and less democracy and less less representation of their their own wishes. I, I think it's it, it's 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 a it's a perfect storm of issues, if I could put it that way. Um, it's it's about a lot about a lot more than that. But two or three things happen simultaneously. Uh, the first is you have um, the uh, you had the extension of the EU to Eastern Europe, and uh, which I think was a very good. Which, thing. by the way, now includes twenty eight states, yes. correct? The yeah. European Union. Yeah, and I think that was a very good thing. But what uh, I think one of the great contributions of the EU has been helping their, those countries transition from communism. But what you had was, a, as a result of it, Tony Blair said, most countries said, you can't have immigrants from these new na nations of Eastern Europe for a, for a transition period. Tony Blair waived that for Britain. And you saw a massive influx. And so you really began to see the immigration debate from Eastern Europe from Eastern into Europe. the UK. Because part of, part of the EU uh, is that anyone in the EU, uh, simplifying here, can basically live and work anywhere else in the EU. And the, e and, and the UK saw a massive influx of people 
on top of a, an influx from elsewhere in the world. So immigration very much came into the debate. And um, the, the debate today, I, I think that there are those who are, uh, such as myself, who are concerned primarily with democracy and sovereignty. And there are also, but there is a big wing of the, uh, of the Brexit crowd who are, who are very concerned about immigration. On the Remain side, what is so interesting about the Remain side is how little enthusiasm they actually have for the European Union. And because there are very few genuine enthused people. So uh, their campaign is then next. mainly based on, on, on uh, yeah. highlighting the risks, well, kind, a of famous, a kind of a fear. There's a famous couplet by uh, the, uh, an English writer called, uh, early 20th century writer called Hilary Belloc. Uh, and the, uh, something like hanging on to nurse for fear, for fear of something worse. So if you look at what Cameron and co say, they, they, they talk about peace and all the rest of it. But really their message is, you better stick with the devil you know. And there isn't much jolly talk about the great European dream, because the European dream is, is dead. Basically. Right. I mean, the articles that I've read on, on, from, from uh, written by uh, advocates of the Remain camp generally have highlighted um, the risks and, and, and uh, most of them uh, have also underscored the fact that the European Union is far from perfect and, and in fact uh, quite flawed, some of them have argued. Um, so in, in a lot of these uh, arguments, it, it was very much a, a fear perhaps a well-founded fear, but a fear-driven argument that if, if the UK did leave, that it might lead to uh, kind of uh, create a cascade of events that, that, that may be very detrimental. Well, there are two... There are two In other words, it was, it was essentially a negative yes. argument rather than we should stay because X, Y, Z, you know, it's so exciting and, That's and right. promising. It, 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 it's basically... You know, and, and, and there are a number of negative... I mean, it's become a joke, but it's called... Project Fear, because these were the tactics used in the Scottish referendum. But some of the some of the, the, the fear mongering has been so extreme that it's just it's just been been greeted with derision. But the two serious points, but the, the first is that the cascade uh, is the cascade that if the UK goes, uh, who else will go? And I, to which I say, depending on how it's done, that that's a, a feature, not a bug, because I think that the European Union, as currently. Uh, is, is a feature, not a bug, because I think that the European Union is currently moving, is actually destabilizing Europe, not stabilizing. What was good in 1957 is not necessarily good for 2016. The other concern is what are the economic effects? Britain is a trading nation. Uh, we, uh, we also ex export a lot in the financial services. Are we going to be shut out of this important market? And to which, and the answer to that is it right? And this is this is this is and this is where there is you know there's no getting away from it. We don't know because the referendum is about one thing and one thing only. It is do we stay in the EU or do we not? The terms of exit are not the subject of the referendum. It's never been done before. So. It's never been done before. I mean, Vote Leave, which is the official uh, uh, organization campaigning to leave. They, they have their view on what exit should look like. I disagree with it fundamentally. And uh, it will be, in the end of the day, it will be up to Parliament or the government 
to negotiate a, a deal with the EU. And if they were to do, uh, I, I don't want to fill up too much of the time, but if, 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 they would, if they were to do what I would favor, which is basically what is known as in shorthand as the Norway option, which is that we stay, we move from the EU to something called EFTA. Not Norway, which is not in the EU yeah. currently and has trading agreements. And has access EU. to the single market and all the rest of it. And that is not quite such a dramatic leap free, but as part of a gentle, a gentle transition away from ever closer union, it works well. Mm -hmm. And I think the economic... We might point out, by the way, that Switzerland is not in the yeah. EU as well. No, right? exactly. They seem, they seem... What they have is a series of bilateral agreements. And, okay. But what Norway has more taken it sort of lock, you know, lock, stock and barrel. But the point is, I, I think you cannot hope to unravel, or you should not hope to unravel, 40 years of integration, Britain has been in this in 1973, in the space of two or three weeks. And you do not want prolonged instability. So what I would do is I say, you can't have an a la carte exit. Let's have, we'll take the, the prefix of, of EFTA and uh, keeping in the EEA, the European Economic Area. Which is the Norway market, option. Yeah, the Norway option. Yeah. And if there is goodwill on all sides, that is eminently doable. The question is, and as someone who, who, who argues for Brexit, to which the, one has to be perfectly honest about this, I'm not in a position to determine how Brexit will happen. And what one has to rely on is self-interest on both sides, enlightened self-interest by the people who want out uh, in, in Britain uh, and the people in Parliament, and one has to re rely on enlightened self-interest by the people uh, in the EU. If people want to make this a, uh, a bitter divorce rather than a velvet divorce, well, then there's no getting away with is that we could see substantial instability. And one, to, one has to hope... Which would be harmful to everyone. Everyone would harm the EU, it would harm the UK, it would be bad all round. And we hope that people have learned enough about of history that, you know, that they learn that, you know... Right. I mean, the, the uh, trade... Uh, links between uh, Britain and the EU are, are very extensive, needless yeah. to say. Uh, I just have a few figures here that our listeners may find useful, which is that uh, in terms of German exports, um, Britain represents 7% of all German exports. And 20% of cars. Okay, that's, that's substantial, despite yeah. having the wheel on the, other, on the yeah. wrong side. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they managed to adapt that. And uh, that the, uh, at the same time, British uh, exports to Germany uh, constitute 10% of total British exports. So, so in, in both directions, um, you know, even if initially there is a bit of a, uh, from the Leave camp and from, uh, excuse me, from the Remain camp and from the part of the e other EU members, even if there's disappointment that a Brexit vote did get through, uh, I would imagine that at some point these numbers will look compelling enough that uh, we have to, uh, that the parties will have to uh, figure yes. out what, what's next in everybody's best interest. And if, and, and, and we, and there, as the Brexit, I do think there's a fault with, with, with some of the people campaigning for Brexit is that they're too blithe about the risks involved. But equally, if the only reason that Britain is remaining in this, uh, in this union is that we fear that uh, the revenge of the people 
uh, if, of our, of our so-called partners if we decide to leave, that looks a lot like an abusive marriage to me, and that is not a reason, a healthy relationship. And my own belief is that if we negotiate a sensible, uh, probably moderate on all sides exit, actually the poison in the relationship between the UK and a lot of our European partners will evaporate. Okay. Uh, by the way, in case it wasn't obvious to our listeners, I have no um, position on the issue. I'm not, uh, if, if it's not completely obvious from my accent, I am not British. <laughs> and and you, you, you're British born, but British you're, born. But you're mean, also... I have both passports. American. Okay, you're, also, you're also an American. Um, let's, uh, you mentioned immigration a bit earlier, uh, and I thought uh, I, I would give you a few figures here that are also useful. And maybe we can talk about uh, the migrant crisis a bit more in this context. But if you look, these numbers are from Pew Research. Uh, and if you look at the percent of foreign-born people or citizens, um, actually, I'm not sure if they're citizens or not. It doesn't matter. Percent foreign-born in uh, various European countries. In, in, the, in, in uh, Europe, in general, it's 11%. But that, that uh, number is... Uh, uh, brought down by the fact that it, it includes Eastern Europe, where, where these percentages are very low. Uh, in other words, former communist bloc countries where the percent of foreign-born uh, varies between 1% and 5%. Whereas in the UK, it's 13%. In Sweden, it's 18%. Austria, 18% as well. Germany, 16%. And France, 12%. And I believe, uh, I don't think Pew includes it in this particular report, but uh, from my memory, I believe in the U.S. it's 14%. I, I could be off, but um, I, think, I think it's of that order of magnitude. So now, as we're, we saw in the past year, there were uh, about 1 million migrants from Asia, the Middle East, Africa, coming into Europe via Turkey or via North Africa and then crossing the Mediterranean. Do you think this um, played a role in uh, bringing this issue of uh, British membership in the European Union to a head? Some of the issues that we've discussed have been simmering for a while. You know, why now? Why not two years ago well, or two years from now? Well, well why, now? why now is easy actually, uh, which, which is uh, back in 2013, uh, David Cameron, uh, was, who was heading a coalition government at the time, uh, he was faced with a challenge from uh, UKIP, which is an insurgent party of the, the populist party, which has elements of right and left. Um, uh, but, but it's defining its original cause was, was getting out of the EU. And you can make, if you look at the numbers, you, it, it's pretty clear that UKIP support, which was only nationally at the time in 2010, about 2 or 3% in national elections, they did very well in European elections, uh, cost the Conservatives an absolute majority. And by 2013, they were beginning to score deep into double digits. Uh, they had the wind behind their sails. The trigger for that, why they suddenly started doing well, their leader is a uh, Nigel Farage, is a, uh, you know, whatever you, you, you agree or disagree, he is an entertaining and interesting character to watch on TV. And Sounds like someone else I'm, uh, yes. that's on, in the news lately. 
uh, I will say Boris Johnson. I don't think he, <laughs> I think he's very different from from Mr. Trump. Uh, the the and what happened was so they were they were they were making encroachments. David Cameron obviously thought that the this was going to result in electoral disaster. So what he did is agreed, and I think if I recall, people say this is just a Tory issue. It wasn't. I think most people wanted a referendum, or there was a big minority wanted a referendum. And he said, okay, what we will have is we will have the next general election, 2015, and if I am elected, uh, we will have a, an in-out referendum by 2017, by the end of 2017. Why had this pressure grown? I, to go back to your question, well, immigration was, was simmering away as an issue because we had had this big influx in, in, in Britain. Uh, the other, from Eastern Europe, mainly. Well, from, from Eastern Europe, but there's also, the reality is, 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 is there, there is a debate below the debate, which is that there's been a lot of immigration from elsewhere. And in a way, the debate about uh, Eastern European immigration is in many respects a debate, a broader immigration debate. It just doesn't call itself that. The, but the other issue was the crisis in the Eurozone. Because if, you, if you're going to have a te technocracy, which is what the EU is, you might at least have a competent one. But what the Eurozone crisis did is it destroyed the EU's reputation for any degree of competence whatsoever. And so Cameron conceded the referendum. What he thought was that he was going to have another coalition government and that he would never be called on his promise to hold a referendum. Because it was clearly, he said he was going to renegotiate a deal, which would be legally almost impossible, and put it to the British people. And I think he thought he wasn't going to win a clear win, get a clear victory. He'd been coalition, so sorry, we don't have the votes to pass the referendum bill. He, I think, to his surprise, certainly to mine, uh, won a majority. So the British people, as a whole, said they wanted this referendum. They endorsed the party that wanted it. And so he then had to stick with his promise. He never wanted this referendum. He had uh, his, his, his renegotiation, which he promised, uh, he said, you know, I will, it was a shambles, it could never achieve anything, it never did, and he, he's given up more or less talking about the great triumph that he won allegedly in Brussels earlier on this year. But he's now in a position, he, he did not want, he never thought he'd have to have this referendum, basically. Okay. So it got, it got but brought Boris, forward by... And, and, then, and then, remember, that if you think of the chronology, 2013 was when he agreed it, he won the election in 2015, I, if you had asked me uh, who I thought would win the referendum at any time in the last four years, I would have said remain very easily. I think what changed it was uh, a certain weariness. Um, there's, there's, there's a broader discontent amongst, there's a good article in The Guardian today about this in, in, in amongst the British working class. Um, but also it was the immigration crisis of last year. And this was the suggestion that once again, these technocrats were bunglers and um, Merkel was acting unilaterally. And I think that that put it up, the whole thing put it up, uh, seeing what was happening, put it up a notch. And there is an argument, and I have no way of knowing whether this is true, is that one of the reasons that the referendum is being held on June the 23rd, 2016, rather than sometime towards the end of 2017, which was the general view, is that Cameron was very worried about having another hot summer of immigration crisis. I and, see. Uh, in other words, this summer. This summer. Okay. This summer coming. So right. that's why they held it in 
quite rapidly, actually, mm -hmm. more, arguably more rapidly really than the rules envisaged, right. in order to, have to, to, to get it in before, any, if there was a big influx in July, August, September of this year, of 27, of 2016. And if, uh, if uh, Brexit, or if the exit of the UK gets, uh, gets through, gets voted, what do you say will be the impact on UK-US relations? Some people, some people have argued that they'll be closer. Other have, others have argued that they will be not as close. Uh, that is very Given, knowing that uh, President Obama has, has uh, vocally uh, uh, advised people, or I don't know how to say it, but uh, kind of not, not quite campaigned, but voiced well, his preference for it for, for a remain. It was pretty much outcome. campaigned, and it was counterproductive. He probably created about a three percent swing towards Brexit. Because there's a limit to how much people like being lectured uh, by the president from a, from, from another, from another country. country. Um, I think it's a very very good question, and it's a it's a very difficult one. The the U.S. always wanted uh, Britain historically in the EU. Uh, once Britain no, no longer had its sort of huge role, its global role, because I think the Americans forget the story about Henry Kissinger uh, saying, oh, "If I want to call Europe, who do I call?" He never said it. And it, it's, a, it's a myth. What the Americans wanted, they liked the idea of the EU as, as, a, as cementing the, the western half of the continent during the Cold War, brought people closer together. They liked the idea of British involvement because they basically understood that the instincts of the core EU were not particularly uh, pro-American and not pr particularly pro-free market. And the thought was, particularly in, in the Thatcher years, that having Britain waving the flag for America and for free market economics within the EU was clearly in American interests. Now, that is still the conventional wisdom in Washington. It is clearly what I think Obama also instinctively likes the, super, the supranational construct of, of the EU as well. But if you say, take a more uh, George W. Bush, say, who always used to say nice things about the European project, I think it was a more cynical view, uh, keep the Brits in as our, our friends at court. So if Britain leaves, of course that goes, and I, I, I'm sure the US, the Washington State Department and so on will not be happy, and I'm sure what they will urge is, is that we have as, if you like, the velvet divorce that I'm advocating, something like that. But there is, for Washington, a silver lining. Uh, and that is that, um, firstly, the, the British influence is waning. Look at the, it just seems very strange that the EU is always taking antitrust and tax actions against big American companies which have, have committed the ultimate crime in European eyes of being successful. And, uh, and the mercantilism that you've seen now coming out of Europe is actually pretty explicit. So the English, British influence has sort of waned a bit somewhat anyway. But the other thing is what really keeps Europe together in the end is NATO. And Europe has, the EU has military ambitions of its own. And I wouldn't go get hysterical about uh, European armies. But in the end, they do want to have a military uh, presence, just like they have a diplomatic presence. And what you would get, instead of basically NATO, where you have NATO at the moment, which is dominated by the Americans, because America actually has the, has the good manners to pay for it, unlike, for example, the German freeloaders. 
Uh, you always hear about Angela Merkel saying about pay your bills. Well, she doesn't when it comes to defense. And I think that there is a genuine concern that if the EU integrates tighter and tighter on the, on the continent-wide, it will gut what's left of the British military, and you will get a quasi-neutralist pillar within NATO. And that, I think, if, if America is thinking further ahead, is, 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 is a very bad thing. Again, I emphasize, we're not talking about European armies tomorrow or even mm -hmm. 10 years to come. But if you read some of the language, you, you, you Google EU army and you'll find some interesting quotes uh, from Merkel or Juncker, uh, the head of the commission. Uh, you will also find, uh, look at Barroso, uh, who was the previous head of the European Commission, talking about uh, Europe as a new sort of empire, uh, or talk up, read uh, the very bright uh, former Polish foreign minister, Radek Sikorski, in an article in the Financial Times, talking uh, earlier on this year, talking about uh, a European empire. Mm -hmm. And I, if I was America, I wanted to be very clear, and I am an American, um, I'd be wanting to be very clear that the military matters are headed by the US and then there are the allies around. A quasi-neutralist or, or, or a Europe that saw, saw itself as an intermediary is unhelpful. And again, if you look at um, some of the things that have been said about Europe, the longer-term aims of Europe, how does Europe define itself? The EU defines, it's not Europe by the way, the EU defines itself. It very often defines itself by what it is it can't define, because there is no EU. There's no EU nationality. There's no EU sense of itself, really, beyond a few bureaucrats. It defines itself by what it is not. And what it is not is America. And you scratch below. You don't have to scratch very far. And there's very deep anti-Americanism. Uh, so I think having Britain... So uh, with, with Britain out of the picture, this could uh, regain in strength? Or well, I think, it's good. I think it's good. The good news about the, you know, the glass is either half full or half empty. Uh, the glass is half full is that Britain is then the fifth largest economy in the world. Uh, it is, which it is. Uh, the, um, it's the NATO member. Its foreign policy is unconstrained by EU, the need to show EU solidarity. The counter-argument, which should not be sniffed at, again, the Remain people, the, the, the exit people are too blithe about this, is that the European response, the EU response, will be tighter integration, and that the British break will have gone, and then you will have a something, uh, an entity dominated by uh, France and Germany, neither of which are most, the, most instinctive of, of Atlanticists. Um, that is why I say that if you get the cascade effect, that is not necessarily the worst thing in the world, again, so long as it's done intelligently. Right. You made me think, you know, you've been describing this from, uh, in terms of geopolitics and strategic terms, but I, it's interesting uh, while you were talking, I thought that this maybe also applies in terms of um, economic terms and, and the way uh, governments view corporations, etc., because in the last few decades, uh, we've had uh, more of a uh, kind of adoption, for lack of a better word, of, uh, I hesitate to call them, but let's call them American ways of, of looking at, at, at companies, you know, shareholder value, et cetera, et cetera, which has done a lot of good for European companies. So with the UK as a 
as, a, as a kind of advocate of these ideas inside the EU now gone, do you think that that whole idea of um, yes. looking out for, for shareholders and, and uh, running companies more efficiently and privatizations and all that will be set back within the EU? I, I, after, I, after I, I, I think gone? so. I mean, you know, there are various things you have to say about it. You know, Britain hasn't always been a, a, a free market force, to sure. be honest about that. Uh, what the, the predominant but at least since the Thatcher yes, years, yes, there was a, a yes. significant shift that maybe waned a bit in yes. subsequent years. But the predominant ideology of of, of continental Europe is, um, as I say, if you go back to just as at the beginning, it is a uh, it, it is a sort of Rhineland. At, on the right is a sort of what's what's known as a Rhineland capitalism, which is essentially social market capitalism, which is a form of corporatism. And then you have social democracy on the left, um, but the sort of there is no let's say there is a very very more, more of a stakeholder view. Stakeholder, it's a stakeholder okay. view, and, and by the way, which is now spilling over, you know, pe people in the, the in the city of London, the financial district in London, worry about the effects of Brexit, not without reason, but they also need to be worrying about encroaching EU regulation of the last 10, 15 years of the financial sector which has been very hostile to British-style uh, finance capitalism. And if you get, you look, again, Google what Mrs. Merkel thinks about finance capitalism, and would the Germans agree to equivalent regulation of their car industry, their auto industry, who know? But right. So the idea that Britain can defend laissez-faire... Now, what is interesting, if you talk to people in Europe, from where, which have a different intellectual tradition. Uh, for example, the Scandinavians, uh, the Dutch, are quite alarmed uh, because they can see where this is going, this sort of corporatist model, and they're not quite so happy with it. And that is why, again, well, maybe the answer is, rather than this vast unhappy family, we have two or three families, and some are going to pursue an ever closer union, and some are not. And... Mm -hmm. But what the, the, the myth that is told and, and is, is, is about our continued British membership of the EU, and they say, well, we're out of ever closer union. And the answer is we're not. And one of the things that uh, is, is rarely mentioned is the role of the European court. And the European court, European law is supreme, much like federal law is supreme in the United States. And, Europe, and, and, and the... the the motor, one of the motors of European integration are the judgments of the European Court. And those still apply in Britain, regardless of the, yes, here and there there are opt-outs, but not in the euro and so on. But a lot of it still applies. Okay. So I, I think sometimes you have to make a choice, and I think it would be best for Europe if people could find their own level rather than all being smashed into this one-size-fits-all. It doesn't work with currencies, as we now know, and it doesn't work with nations. So what do you say to some uh, observers, some American observers, mm -hmm. who look at this and say, you know what, we've had our differences among U.S. states, you know, we, we, we've, we've had an awful civil war, uh, but we stayed together over 200 years now, and uh, except for uh, some stretches that were very difficult, 
in the end, it turned out to be worthwhile to, to, to at least in the, in the view of most people. I certainly think it, so. Um, it, it, it turned out to be worthwhile to stay together. Yeah. So, what about the people who say, you know what, this is everything you've said, Andrew, is true. Um, the EU perhaps overreached with trying to impose its authority on some things. But why should we not look at this as a temporary crisis that perhaps we can solve through other ways and, and then keep everyone together? Um, I think, to answer that first, then go to the American parallel. The answer is you could solve this crisis by accepting uh, that there was a pause button. And uh, the, the, it's these three fatal words, ever closer union, uh, which caused the trouble. You could have had a very amicable sort of European Union light with different people doing different things. Unfortunately, the structure that was set up doesn't allow it. It's a machine that no one knows how to stop. The American analogy, people say, well, why? People say, oh, well, America seems to have done it. You know, so, so you said, Andrew, you're an American. Surely you can see. And the answer is you have to know a little bit, a little bit about, about history. Um, firstly, the Americans of the 13 colonies, admittedly, some came from Holland and Germany and so on, but what were they revolting about? They were revolting about the reassertion of what they saw, traditional British liberties. They saw themselves as already as fellow countrymen. They saw themselves first as Britons, and then when they passed the point of no, report, uh, no return as Americans. So there was a, already a pre-existing national consciousness. And the second thing, people say, uh, what, what brought the, those 13 colonies together was the experience of fighting against a shared enemy, being the British crown. Well, yes, Europe too has had a shared experience of war, but the problem has been fighting each other, mm. and that's rather different. Um, sure. They work side by side, they're at each other's throats. So I think you can't, uh, you, you can't draw a comparison and you cannot impose a, uh, you know, how you create nations and the sense of nationhood is a complicated and there is always artificiality, any nation that you look. But uh, as Spinelli recognized, there was no European consciousness in 1930. There wasn't really one in 1957. There isn't much of one now. And the, 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 um, in 1776, there was, a, there was a consciousness of, firstly, they were all British and then they were all Americans. There was an interesting example uh, during at the, one of the Greek bailouts. The then president of Germany, a man called Christian Wolff, uh, gave a sort of fable, and he was talking about bailouts. And, and I'm not, not quoting him exactly, but he said, well, yeah, if, 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 if you know, your brother gets into financial trouble, you, 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 you help him out, or your son, or your cousin. And the non-too-subtle subtext was the Greeks were not family. And that is, in, in a sense, at its most crude, and I don't want to push this too far, a nation has some vague sense. You know, New York may grumble uh, about uh, Louisiana, and California may grumble about uh, Virginia or Oklahoma, but at the end of the day, they all say, we're all Americans. Right. Uh, last time I looked, Germans and Greeks are not saying we're all one people. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
Andrew, thanks so much for spending the time. Do you think we uh, need to answer or cover other topics before I let you go? No, You'd I mean... be I'm, very generous with your no, time. No, so. that's, that, we'll have to see what happens. Uh, I think that's... By the way, the polls now, uh, I've seen a couple of polls. Uh, I think as of two days ago, the leave camp had a slight edge, or what, what have you seen yeah, recently? Yeah, I, I think it's worth adding. I've always said, I've always thought Remain would win. If you'd asked me two or three days ago, uh, I would have thought it was getting very close. Leave were about six percentage points ahead. Uh, we had a tragic um, assassination yesterday um, of a Labour MP and um, by a guy, well, I should say alleged, uh, to be very clear about this, um, but uh, he appears to have been both, uh, if the alleged uh, assailant murderer appears to have been both a member of the, or have far-right leanings. So the, uh, the MP in question is Joe Cox, correct? Joe, yes, From, yes. 41-year-old. Uh, yeah, mother of two But uh, has the link uh, or the motivation uh, been established that this was in part uh, no. due to... to uh, it's, it's, it's just, if, if it is correct, the alleged guy was a member of, 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 of the far-right, given that Euroscepticism is more associated with the right than the left, um, there is, you know, you, the, 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 there is. You can, you can see how people might just put put, put dots together, sure. fairly or unfairly. But I think the other thing uh, we go back to. I mean, this this awful murder um, reminds people that life is insecure, and I have a feeling I could be completely wrong um, that it maybe will make people more risk averse. You know, you see some some poor woman. Uh, shot in the middle of, of, of a street, right. people don't feel, nor they should, yeah. easy. Oh, it's a terrible so I, I don't know whether that will have an effect. One doesn't even like to think of it in these terms, but right. it may or may not. Okay. So thank you very much, Andrew Stutterford. Uh, once again, his articles can be found at National Review, The Weekly Standard, uh, and many other publications. I am Sammy Karam. Thank you for joining us.